This is chapter 122 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, author Candace Bushnell of Sex in the City fame shares her thoughts on getting older. Then we talk with debut author Hazel Pryor about her heartwarming novel featuring a housewife, a heartmaker, and one plucky pheasant. Even if you've never seen a single episode of Sex in the City, you probably have a passing awareness that it's about a group of female friends navigating dating life in New York City. The original book was first published in 1997. And since then, those 30-something-year-old women and author Candace Bushnell have gone through quite a lot. Kids, divorce, death, and getting old. In her new book, Is There Still Sex in the City?, we follow a new group of friends surviving what Bushnell calls MAM, middle-aged madness. She recently spoke with our Pat Farnack about the book that's not a sequel, but... It is very much the spirit of Sex in the City because I really had the same... It's about a passage of time in Mm -hmm. women's lives. It's really about a new passage of time in women's lives. And we feel like we're in uncharted territory. And that was exactly how I felt when I was writing Sex in the City. You know, 25 years ago when I started uh, writing the book, really, I was a single woman in my 30s. And there weren't supposed to be any single women in their 30s. (laughs) So we really felt like we were outliers. And... You know, and that was, you know, your friends become your family, and, you know, there are all kinds of adventures. And what happened was so many of the the Sex and the City women ended up finding their Mr. Big or their Aiden or their Steve and having children. And in a way, having what looked like a happily ever after ending – Except that life goes on, and the happily ever after doesn't always work out. Mm. And and that's, is there still sex in the city? Mm. So it's, it's about, a, you know, at one time, being in your 50s was, it was really the beginning of retirement. Yeah. And it was also time when you were kind of encouraged, you could let yourself go, <laughs> and you can kind of disappear. You know, it's like you didn't really have to be out there in the world. But that's no longer true. Nobody's 50s looks like some form of retirement. We just don't live like that. Mm-hmm. So the 50s really becomes a passage of reinvention. I think that we were attracted to Carrie in Sex in the City partly because she have this incredible support group of friends around her. And that was so attractive. And now your new characters also have each other. I wanted to know where that came from and and if you've had that in your life. Well, that came out of the reality of my life. So I do have that in my life. You're you're very lucky then. I, I feel very lucky. And... What happened was that I got divorced and I, for a couple of years, I really, I kind of, I felt like I was the only one who was divorced. And I had a couple, I had two really good girlfriends who were single. So Mm. we were very, very tight. And then they both moved outside of the city. Mm. And so I thought, you know what? 
This is what we're going to do. We're all going to move. We're going to live close by, and we're going to take care of each other. Well, what happened was several of our other girlfriends got divorced, and they all went to where the other single women were. So at one time, I feel like we had about 10 or 12 women who were newly single and we were all supporting each other and and it was really really great well you're you're lucky to i mean if you have one or two friends you know you're considered blessed but to have a whole gang of friends that's that's so nice i i saw you on good morning america and uh, michael strahan asked the inevitable question from your title is there still sex in the city and you said no and the audience just loved it would you uh, care to elaborate? I think I might have said yes, but less. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have actually asked that question of quite a few people, including a lot of middle-aged men. And that's the answer that pretty much everybody gives. But, you know, I think it isn't just, not just sex, literally sex. I think sex it's a word that means like, is there still vibrancy? Is there still passion for life and desire and all of those things? And and that's really what that's really what this new middle age is about. It's like you've got to refine your passion. And so yes, there is, but actual <laughs> sex less. The crazy thing though is that there's less for everybody, including young people. I mean, there's, there almost seems to be a sex crisis among young people. They're not having sex or they're having less sex. You know, another great chapter was the one on Arnold or the SAP, oh. Senior Age Playa. <laughs> it was yes. hilarious, but also really obnoxious. I mean, there is this, uh, what was he, 75? I, I can't even believe you had a conversation with him let alone sort of went on a date, right? First of all, that was so much worse than what I wrote about. And in fact, my editor, my editor made me cut some things out because she said, this is just so awful. Nobody wants to read it. But I, but I wanted to say, I mean, to me, it was really emblematic of how society tells women, you know, that these men with these certain attributes are really, you know, desirable and we should feel lucky to be with those kinds of guys. This guy was an old-fashioned, what do they call it, male chauvinist pig. He was. And the most shocking part was really when he, I mean, he really did have a coterie of, of younger women, but he, you know, but he bought them things. And he had no problem with the fact that obviously they were interested in him because he was buying them things. He didn't care. It it was it was funny, but I also was, you know, I was I was also angry. I mean, I was angry at myself and I was angry at society that, you know, this is the kind of guy who we value. But it was sort of like you were an anthropologist. I mean, you sort of had to go through that to write about it. So from that standpoint. Oh, absolutely. And and you know what else? You know what kind of orbits to stay out of. Why put yourself in, in that ever again? You can talk about it and laugh about it. It becomes fodder for a party and, and you just stay out of those orbits. That's, exactly. That's, yeah. 
you describe your your Candace character dating these younger guys and and being on Tinder, but despite all the craziness in your book, she really had her work to sustain her, and so did you in your life. Was that your message? Yes. Well, you know, I've always been. I, you know, for me, work really is my passion, and you know, this isn't true for everybody else, and everybody has, you know, their own you know, their their own journey and, and desires and that sort of thing. But for me, work has always been really important and it and it is what kinda keeps me going. Yeah. Work and friendship actually are are the important things for me. And interestingly, I did meet somebody while I was in a sense, doing research for the book. I met the, I call him MNB, my new boyfriend. And this was also a pattern that I, I discovered. Women, you know, women who found, you know, guys at this time, they were, they're really looking for something different than what they were looking for before. What's interesting is no matter how old we get, you never really lose that capacity for love. Well, hooray. <laughs> but you got to have work. I, I mean, I, I do hear stories, of, you know, women, the kids, you know, they've been so focused on their children, and now those children are in college, and they, they really are lost. That's part of this passage. It is like being an adolescent again, and you are a bit lost. You might be a bit sad. You do self-examination, and almost everybody gets through this time in a happier, more self-confident way. It's, I think the 50s is like the bottom of the U-curve. You're at work now on the pilot for Is There Still Sex in the City? Still Sex in the City. Yes, it, I can, am. What can you reveal about that? That's exciting. It's very exciting. We're just at the, we're at the very beginning where we outline the characters and and their stories and, you know, what will be their trajectories. And and then we we have all kinds of funny middle-aged things that <laughs> we're going to cover. I mean, for instance, one of the things that my co-writer came up with was, you know, Botox stops working. I mean, like, that's a little, that could be like a funny little, funny little story. So, I mean, there are all kinds of things ranging from, I mean, really, you know, the sad and poignant and the stuff of real life and, you know, to the absurdly funny. Where is it going to be on? What platform? Or will it be a movie or a series? It's a series. It will be a series. We don't, at this point, know exactly where it will be, but we probably will be, we'll know in, I'd say, a month or so. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Well, that'll keep you going uh, until the next passage. I hope. (laughs) Is there still movement in the city? Exactly. (laughs) But, you know, I think there's so many, there really are a lot of, the 60s can be a time when women are really their most successful. You know, I keep looking at all these women politicians there. They're doing it. Yes, they are. I'd like to think so. Well, thank you so much for doing the interview. Uh, We've been chatting with Candace Bushnell, uh, originator of Sex in the City, and now out with the latest, Is There Still Sex in the City? Thank you so much. Thank you. Ellie and the Heartmaker, the debut novel from Hazel Pryor, is a heartwarming love story about a woman trying to tick things off her before 40 bucket list and her unlikely dream maker. 
As the title suggests, there are harps involved, and that makes sense when you learn that Pryor is herself a professional harpist. We recently chatted about her charming book. There are two main characters, and it's told from um, alternate points of view. So you get Ellie chapters and you get Dan chapters. Dan is the heart maker. Um, I'll start with Dan. He's um, a very, very quirky character. He um, is obsessed with making harps. He lives um, alone in a converted barn on the moor. And he also obsessively makes sandwiches and goes for walks and counts things. So he's a little bit out there um, and a little bit unsure about social situations. Um, And Ellie, on the other hand, is much more kind of normal. She lives a normal life, uh, married to a slightly controlling husband called Clive. Um, She's a bit of a dreamer. She kind of lacks the courage of her convictions. Um, But she's a lovely person. Um, And she stumbles across um, Dan's barn one day. Um, and is amazed to see all these harps and um, ends up, strangely, um, she's, she's always, always had this kind of vague dream about playing the harp. And Dan is, is just sort of convinces her that this is what she should do. She must do it because you, you shouldn't have a list of things you want to do and not do stuff on it. Um, and she kind of, in a sort of dream, she, she decides she will start playing a harp. But this leads to all sorts of strange um, occurrences and events and discoveries um, and dramas in the end. So it's sort of a bit of a romance, um, but more of a kind of general love story. It's got a li- some elements of psychological suspense in it, I would say. And it's also quite sort of lyrical, lots of descriptions. And the setting of Exmoor is very important. It really shouldn't come as a surprise to readers that you yourself are a harpist. Yes, I have played the harp for many years now. I've struggled with it quite a bit because I didn't start until I was in my 20s. Um, And I'm very aware that a lot of people sort of romanticise about the instrument, the harp. Um, And in fact, a lot of people um, were coming up to me when I was kind of having ideas about writing this book. They were coming up to me saying, oh, I've always wanted to play the harp um, whenever I played at performances. And I thought, oh, it does have a kind of magnetism. So that was kind of where I got the idea of um, Ellie, and I thought, oh, a heart maker would sort of be somebody who can make dreams come true. So I sort of ba- sort of started thinking about his character from that point. I love the setting. I also love how you get the sense that music is a language that can transcend people, animals, tough situations. It just has this ability to bring people together. And I guess you're kind of hitting on that a little bit when you say there's just something about a harp, too. Yes, I think so. I mean, for me, obviously, it's specifically harps. But for a lot of people, I think they see music as a language, as you say, that it is something that that transcends um, a lot of other means of communication. It goes straight to the heart. And for different people, it's different types of music, clearly. But there is something very magical about it and what it can do and how it can lift you and change your mood um, and make you feel different, completely different. Um, so, yeah, it's an amazing thing, and I do feel very passionately about it. Talk to us about the setting, Exmoor. Exmoor, well, um, I live on Exmoor, actually, so um, I didn't have to go very far to research that one. <laughs> um, I go regularly go on walks, um, and I just love it. It's very sort of wild, open, hilly landscape um, with sort of lots of woodlands and moorlands, and we've got the sea as well. There's lots of sort of rivers and little sparkling streams. Um, So it's beautiful, and um, the landscape is very important, both to Dan and to Ellie. 
Um, Ali sort of writes poems privately about it, but she never shows anybody because she's sort of too embarrassed to. Um, and Dan just kind of looks at everything in so much detail. He looks at every grass blade and thinks, wow, that's amazing. And I just think, you know, nature, nature again, like music, has, has things to communicate to us. And I hope that comes across in the book. Do you collect pebbles on your walks as well? <laughs> no, I don't, I'm afraid. No, I've, I look at them sometimes, but I, I don't have... Um, I don't have anything to do with them, unlike Dan, who sort of, he admires them for their own sake, but also he, he puts an Exmoor pebble into every single one of his harps. He places it in the woodwork there as a sort of decorative feature. But no, I don't make harps myself, so <laughs> I don't collect them. Dan is really not your typical romantic interest that you come across in a romantic comedy. It was intentional, I'm sure, on your part, but why was it so important to... to create the character that he is that's interesting because i don't really know where he came from i don't in real life i don't know anybody like him at all not remotely like him um and his voice which is a little bit quirky and unique just um came to me really and his character just came to me it's not something i deliberately set out to do um but I remember at the beginning thinking, oh, I'll, maybe I'll make him a straightforward blokey bloke, and that just didn't seem to work. And then as soon as I kind of accepted that, oh, well, just listen and see how he comes, and that's how he came. One of those mysterious things that happens with writers. Call it the muse, if you like, but he just, just turned out that way, and I don't know why. I don't know if this is reading too much into it. I mean, you don't come out and explicitly say it, but is there a touch of autism there? Um, yes, I think most people reading it um, would detect that. And if you kind of look at the sort of um, behaviour that he displays, I think he does sort of fit into that category. But I'm somebody who really doesn't like to slap labels on people. Um, so I leave it up to the reader. Um, and if they like to categorise, they can do that and say, oh, yes, he's definitely autistic. He's definitely on their spectrum. He's definitely there. Um, but for those of them who just want to think, well, that's just the way he is, that's fine, no problem, um, don't need to categorise, then that's fine as well. Um, so I deliberately, no, I don't, I don't pigeonhole him. I really did love seeing the world through his eyes because there's, there's just this fresh innocence to it and that we kind of lose as adults. Yes, I think his way of looking at the world is perfectly valid um, and, and really wonderful, actually. I've really enjoyed writing from his point of view, um, which as I say, it came to me surprisingly, maybe worryingly, easily. <laughs> Whereas Ellie, I had to work on much harder um, to make her a real and rounded person. But um, Dan is just, is just amazing. I love him. I have to say, I do love him. So tell me then where Phineas came from. Oh, Phineas, yes. Now, he's the pheasant, and he's shown on the cover of the book. Right. So there isn't he... a harp on the cover. There's a pheasant on the cover. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think, well, it wasn't my decision. This was the, or the publishers do all the cover design and stuff. I think maybe because Harp was in the title, they thought, well, we've got that now. Um, <laughs> and the pheasant is, um, is a very quirky character. He doesn't come in until a little bit sort of later on in the book, but he's, um, he does come to play quite an important role. Um, we have many, many pheasants on Exmoor. So in a way, as it's an Exmoor story, I thought, oh, it'd be nice to include a pheasant. Also, he sort of brings out the softer side in, in Dan. I think he kind of shows a lot about Dan's character um, because Dan just passionately loves animals and wants to leap in and save them. The pheasant nearly gets shot. Um, well, he does get shot, but, 
but, you know, not killed. Um, and Dan leaps in to save and, and gets injured himself in the process. I hope I'm not giving too much away here. <laughs> um, but yes, that's one of, one of the sort of smaller dramas of the story that kind of is very revealing about the characters, I think. And he's also a good detector of character, as we learn, and we won't give too much away. Yes, I think so. I mean, there's, there's certain things that he just takes too literally and doesn't understand. But underneath, he's very, very um, sensitive to people's needs, and I think he understands in a in a in a much deeper way. Um, and in fact, the last word of the whole novel is the word understood. And I think that's very, very crucial. Um, again, it's something that just happened organically, but it occurred to me recently, I thought, oh, yes, that's actually the perfect word um, at the end of the novel because um, Ellie just really, really needs to be understood. And Clive, her husband, doesn't understand her at all. Um, and Dan also needs to be understood. And they have this sort of link that sort of semi-platonic, semi-romantic Ellie and Dan. Um, and in the end, you, you've got that understanding between them. I think it's a, a beautiful, innocent love story, a love out of friendship story. It just, it makes you smile and it makes you feel good. I'm really glad. Um, I wanted to write a story um, that would make people feel happier about life, even though it also has some dark things underneath the surface. Um, because I've read so many books when I was feeling down, you know, we all have times in our life that are really hard to go through. And I've, I've read books during those times which are beautifully written, exquisitely brilliant, brilliant storytelling, but have actually just made me feel worse about life. And I just thought, actually, I want to put out a story that makes people feel better um, in the end, that shows people overcoming problems, um, which I think is very important and very worthwhile. I know you're working on your next novel. Is it going to follow along in this, the same theme and the same mission of, of making people feel happy? I think in a way, yes. Um, in a way, it's got some dramas and some darker um, aspects to it. But in a way, um, I'm hoping that it, it, it is ultimately a sort of something that will you can take away, something that will make you feel better in the long run about it, yeah. All right. In the meantime, though, we can pick up Ellie and the Harpmaker, Hazel Pryor. Thank you so much for talking to me this morning. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. And lovely to talk to you. That's this week's show. Next time, a beautiful and haunting fictional story about healing from trauma. Until then, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. If you aren't already following us, then you missed the link we shared about the one-star reviews for the classic kid book, Goodnight Moon. Let's just say some people take their children's books very seriously. Until next time, I'm Lisa Chernkovich.